Yeah, good afternoon and welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show. I hope this finds you well, December the 11th, 2023. I've got two very, very interesting guests lined up for you this afternoon. Please reach out to me during the programme. Have your say on the matters being discussed via the Richie Allen Show app or richieallen.co.uk. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Herman Kelly is the president of the Irish Freedom Party. We spoke to Herman back in the summer. I've invited him back on today to talk about the Irish government's proposals on free speech, which is garnering international attention, and also the erasure of the word woman from the Irish Constitution. These issues, of course, uh, well, they're issues for everybody, aren't they? So Herman Kelly this hour. In the second hour, I've invited my old pal Kevin Barrett back to the programme, truthjihad.com. Kevin is in Morocco uh, these days. He's an author and broadcaster, as you know. And I want to talk to him about Gaza and more besides. Kevin in hour two, Herman Kelly, hour one, Monday's programme. And I have to tell you, I'm not great, to be honest. I'm not great. You've had me in better form. I've had a rotten 24 hours. I've got that, what they call the winter vomiting bug or norovirus. So yes, I've had the vomiting. I'm sorry to say it now. And the other side of it as well. It's been a bit shite really over the last 24 hours. But I think it's running through me pretty quickly. And I, apologies if you're eating. But uh, hence, I'm with you anyway. I'm here in spirit. And I need to take um, I need to take some oxygen, which I'll do in a moment when, when I play a clip. But yeah, I've not been great, but I'm here and it's, as usual, nice to be with you. I hope you had a good weekend. Let's have a look at some of the stories making the news today here in the UK. Rishi Sunak is giving testimony to the COVID inquiry. He's the current Prime Minister of the UK. We might touch on some of that in a moment. But to the serious news first, let's start with the serious news. Barbie and Oppenheimer lead the nominations. At the Golden Globes, with Barbie having nine nominations and Oppenheimer having eight. I've seen neither movie, but I believe both of them are cat. Now, that's an Irish term, cat. It's only in Ireland you will hear something deplorable being described as cat. Cat is short for cat malosian. It's cat, um, I believe, Barbie, but it's nominated for... It must be a terrible year for films, is it? I can't think in 2023 of a film I saw where I thought, yeah, that was absolutely brilliant. But maybe I've missed the good films. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something I never do. I'm going to take a piece of music while I look after me breathing. I'm a bit unwell today, you know. It's unusual. I should have done this before starting the programme. But anyway, here's Bruce the Boss Springsteen then. And a song called Downbound Train, which is probably apt, considering. Yeah, it's a mortal sin to cut Brucey short. We'll cut Brucey short. This is a news show at the end of the day. Apologies for the interruption to the news. Waxing lyrical about Barbie. Nine nominations. Honey Boo Boo, Sister is Dead. Imagine I did that. I might do it some April 1st, but I've given the game away now, you see. So if next April 1st, if I do that, I'll have given the game away. Honey Boo Boo. I knew nothing about Honey Boo Boo until today. Her sister passed away. Age 29, cancer apparently. Yeah, Honey Boo Boo's sister is dead. Stop it now, stop it. Okay, I'll stop it. Let's go back to the COVID inquiry then. There was a brilliant piece in today's Telegraph by Matt Ridley. 
Now, don't throw cabbages and lettuces and onions at me. I don't know anything about Matt Ridley. He, he might be the devil himself, right? But I don't know. I know nothing about him. But he's written an interesting piece in The Telegraph about the inquiry. Can I read you two paragraphs of it? All right. On Monday today, Rishi Sunak will appear at the COVID inquiry. It barely matters what he says because it is as predictable as sunrise that he will be pilloried for the mistakes of others, that being the modern purpose of politicians, it seems. In his own appearance, Boris Johnson said that he was very much impressed and dependent upon the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor, both of whom are outstanding experts in their field. Weren't we all? In those early months of 2020, most of us trusted Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty to find the best way through the impending pandemic. We were glad to follow the science. We, yet now we have to listen to a lawyer, Hugo Keith KC, tell us with the benefit of three years of hindsight that the entire pandemic was all the fault of politicians. The virus, the Chinese regime and the scientists are spotless in their reputations, it seems. Had Sunak and Johnson acted differently, then apparently almost nobody would have died. This is claptrap, writes Ridley in the Telegraph. No country, not Sweden, not Japan, not Outer Mongolia, escaped the pandemic. Britain suffered about as many waves of the virus and excess deaths per head of population as France, Germany and Italy, and rather better than Spain. Many places that did well in the first wave did badly in later waves. Not that Mr. Keith KC knows this. He shamelessly told Mr. Johnson that Britain had one of the worst pandemics in Europe and had to be corrected by the former Prime Minister. Never in the history of Britain have politicians so clearly abandoned their own policies and instincts at the behest of the technocrats. This was made plain day after day as the scientists took to the airwaves and stood behind podiums saying nothing different from the politicians who echoed and praised them. Yes, I know. We've said it too many times since the announcement of this inquiry. It is a farce. It is not dealing with the legitimacy or the validity of the science that led to the lockdowns and the ridiculously arbitrary measures. No, it isn't. Of course it isn't. It's all about, this should have happened sooner and quicker. And look at that WhatsApp message. He called you the C-word. What do you reckon to that? And that's how it's been going. Very good piece by Ridley there in The Telegraph. Tamandra Harkness was on Politics Live today. She's a talking head, a journalist. And um, she's not happy with how the inquiry is going either. Tamandra Harkness. I feel we are getting a finger-pointing, blaming individuals. Instead of saying... Well, let us now, now we're not actually facing a crisis like this, say these were the downsides of lockdown. And, you know, it is emerging. There were some very severe downsides. You know, there's reports coming out now saying uh, the impact on especially more deprived families. Mm. Uh, not just the economy, but just the fabric of society. I think the way we interact as people has never really recovered from being told to stay apart from each other and view everybody with mistrust. With mistrust, yes. We've not recovered. She's right there, you know. She's right there. Also speaking on the same programme was uh, Labour MP Catherine McKinnell. She disagrees with Harkness. But then Catherine McKinnell and the Labour Party don't have any other option but to disagree because the Labour Party acted, well, as like the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders during lockdown one, didn't they? They might as well have been wearing those lovely white costumes and the white cowboy boots 
For all Labour did, here's Catherine McKinnell. Do you agree with that? Do you think it was harmful, Catherine? I think it's really important to respect the inquiry. I think it's very important to families who suffered loss. Who... Oh, well, fuck the families and their loss and the bereaved. I saw them today. Fuck them. I'm sorry it's not language becoming of a respectable journalist, but fuck every one of them, you know? I mean, the, the idea that I have any time for Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak is preposterous, or any politician, or the goons, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, Witty and Valance, and their circus act every day at five o'clock from Downing Street. I have no time for them. A pox on them and their families, I say. But fuck the bereaved families and this nonsense of, if they had a lockdown sooner, my family would be alive. Fuck them. Look at the damage that lockdown has done to people, to children, to adult human beings. I meet people all the time. I met a friend of mine today who has been seriously adversely affected by the lockdowns and all around it, the last three years, the tyranny, the impact it's had on people psychologically. How dare they? How dare this woman from the Labour Party attempt to, you know, just, just toss off. Let's toss off the adverse impacts of lockdowns themselves and talk about the bereaved families. But as I said, Labour can hardly do anything different because Labour cheer-led it from day one, didn't they? Who suffered loss of loved ones, who suffered loss of businesses, time with loved ones. And I think it's really important that we let the inquiry... Well, they wouldn't have lost any time with loved ones if it wasn't for the farcical lockdowns and people being condemned to wave at their relatives from the windows of care homes. Again, cheer-led by you, Catherine McKinnell, and that dozy bunch of bastards you sit with in the House of Commons, who did nothing except applaud the government and demand the government lock down harder and faster. Irie, do its job in its entirety. But it isn't doing its job. This idiot Hugo Keith, who looks more and more farcical as the days goes on, uh, go on, as the days go on, this King's Council moron, who's more interested in the petty squabblings of childish morons on, on, on social media than whether or not any of the last three years was fucking justified. Was it? Show me the minutiae of the evidence. Show me that lockdown was justified and not a fucking tyranny. But no, that's not what's going on. And I shouldn't look at it. Because it drives me mad and madder and madder the more I look at it, to be honest. And, and I appreciate as day-to-day day -day events occur, there's a particular focus on individuals. But actually, I think we need to take it in the whole and respect the, the role of the inquiry, which was set up um, to, to look at it in the round. But I think the difficulty people find is that it keeps exposing the chaos that, that was at the heart of government. Which is irrelevant. The chaos is irrelevant. The chaos is understandable, even though those of us in the know... We know that Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove, that cretin Sajid Javid, we know these people weren't really in charge. But even so, the chaos is understandable. There is a virus, it's killing people. Chaos. They don't know what to do. So they do what they're told to do by the technocrats mentioned in Matt Ridley's article. They do what they're told to do by the specially flown in, the specially chosen scientists of the cabal, to tell them to lock the country down and plunge people into eternal misery, right? So it's not doing anything other than that. The time is 12 and a half minutes past the year. Let's leave her alone. And let's leave the COVID inquiry alone. Uh, 17,700 dead in Gaza now, by the way. Maybe more than that, 18,000. And Joe Biden, who probably doesn't know his own name now, um, has okayed 14,000 tank shells to be sent to Israel because there's not enough dead. You know, nearly 10,000 children, they reckon now, killed, blown to pieces in Gaza. But still, 
the United States government. And by the way, Biden bypassed congressional approval, just skipped over that and said, yeah, you can have 14,000 more tank shells because we haven't killed enough people in Gaza. So let's carry on to see how far you can get. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit later on in the programme. Um, there's an interesting racism story in the Times today. I don't know. It's an interesting one. Have you read about this? Talk about a fish out of water. A former NFL player has claimed he's being forced out as the landlord of a country pub by its wealthy landowners because he is black and he is from America. Well, I would imagine in a wealthy rural area, I would imagine he is a curiosity. This is Lorna Sam. He was a quarterback. One time he played for the Denver Broncos. And for a while he played for the Coventry Jets. <laughs> At the laugh when I read that, the Coventry Jets. And he's a black man, and he made a few bob, and he bought a country pub, and he's probably a curiosity. Um, he's locked in a court row over his management of the Carrington Arms in Leicestershire. He said, Lorna Sam, he's been forced to close the historic inn, described as one of the prettiest in the country, on its website, after falling out with the owners over its interior decor. He claimed he'd been treated differently from previous tenants because of his background. He's alleging racial discrimination and all the rest of it. The accusation has been denied and described as ludicrous by the landowners. One of the landowners is some lord of some manor somewhere. It's hilarious. I'm guessing he's probably taken this beautiful country pub and he has adorned the insides with NFL memorabilia. Maybe. I don't know. I'd love to know a bit more about that. But I couldn't find out more about it. Um, mad weather in Ireland altogether. There was a tornado in Leitrim. Leitrim. If I didn't know any better, I'd say that Leitrim County Council borrowed a weather manipulation machine from Bill Gates just to draw a bit of attention to Leitrim because no fecker goes to Leitrim unless they're fed up in New Zealand and they decide to come home. I don't know. <laughs> right? <laughs> wink, wink. Jerry Murphy met Aaron. Met Aaron is metro, metro, meteor, meteorological Aaron. Jerry Murphy on Morning Ireland. Tornado, Leitrim. What the hell's going on, Jerry? Many tornadoes in Ireland are... Not very frequent and not very common, but they do occur. And in fact, they occur at roughly a rate of about 10 mini tornadoes per year. 10 a year now. They have, there have been more reports of them in recent years due to people being uh, catch, capturing them on their phones and social media, etc. Now, yesterday's one really what would have happened is that the thunderstorm developed. But once there is a what we call wind shear, this is the different direction and wind at different heights. This causes the rotation and once the thunderstorm then starts to rotate, the, the vortex develops mm -hmm. and once that vortex then pushes down into the ground and once it hits the ground, then there's that spinning wind on the surface and that's the spinning wind that moved right across Leitrim Village and caused all the damage that you've just heard about. I have to say I am surprised that we have 10 or, or, or more mini tornadoes a year but I'm still, you know, the, the way this, from, from, from the eyewitness accounts, the behaviour uh, of this mini tornado. That How did it behave? Whipped through one side of the street. Only one side of the street. Causing such extensive damage. You know, whipping up flower beds and uh, trees, a car, the, the boats and so on. But all seemingly centred in such a small area. And it 
came through in, in, in a minute or so? In a minute or so, Jerry. Yes, well, that that's the way tornadoes actually actually work. As I said, once the once the the vortex that's that develops into the tornado hits the ground, it spins around. But that can be over a very small area, and then it basically literally sweeps up everything in its path as it as it moves, and that's what it did yesterday. And the reason that we we call them mini tornadoes in this country is because that spinning at the ground is very small compared to the massive um, spinning tornadoes that you get. Brilliant, gripping stuff. One of the things that was most notable about that interview this morning was I, I've, I've heard quite a lot about Leitrim and the tornado overnight, okay? Sitting up as I was, ill as I was, reading the papers and whatnot and the websites. And Morning Ireland was the only radio station in Western Europe this morning, at least as far as I can tell, that decided not to mention climate change. So well done to Morning Ireland because I don't think climate change, well, first of all, there is no man-made climate change. Climate change naturally, but certainly the tornado had nothing to do with CO2. Uh, this, by the way, is the Richie Allen Show broadcasting live from BBG Towers here in Salford with a little under the weather, BBG. It's the last time I'll mention that, but I'm a little bit under the weather. There might be a mistake or two later on. I might mis- misfire a jingle or, or something bit shaky today but anyway it is what it is and I'm here I expect kudos I expect respect <laughs> James says Richie um, it's off topic he says well it's not James we're talking about everything he says I saw LBC radio show radio station race baiting the other day question of what country are the immigrants coming from well, that's interesting Mark says hi 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 Mark um I didn't hear that at all. Um, I didn't hear that at all. Let me um, um, let me take a piece of music, because I've had a bit of news there, um, from Mark, and I wasn't aware of it, and it's very serious news. So let me take um some music, if I can grab some music in, and um, I'll come back then after I've determined whether what Mark has told me is uh, true or not. Um, Here's music from the Irish band Aslan. Back with you in a few minutes. Yeah, I've got some um, really bad news to uh, report. I had a heads up from Mark on the uh, messaging on the app to say that Kerry Ike, David Ike's daughter, had passed away. Um, Gareth Ike, her, her brother, has posted on Twitter in the last 20 minutes that um, Kerry had passed away after a, a battle with illness that she had kept to herself for over a year, he said. Um, I, I knew Kerry quite well, obviously, um, o- over a number of years. In fact, it's not that long ago that we um, swapped a few messages on Twitter, so I'm pretty surprised and, and gutted for that. And and all I can say, I suppose, is um, nothing but I'm sorry to hear that. And condolences to David and Linda, his ex-wife, Kerry's mum, and to Kerry's children and to Gareth and Jamie, because um, she was a lovely, lovely person. Great character, great bubbly and vivacious and a great mum to her children. So um, it's horrible, that, isn't it? I don't know what else to say, really. It's terrible. Um, apparently, reading into... Gareth's uh, tweet, she'd had um, she'd battled some sort of illness for over a year 
and succumbed to it. Today, he said that the family were fortunate enough to be there with her at the very end, which will, it might not be any comfort to them right now, but it'll be some comfort to them, I suppose, in the near future. So um, terrible news, really, because um, she was a lovely person. And I don't know what else to say about that, really. So I won't say anything about it. I'll take another piece of music and then we'll, um, we'll have a chat with Herman Kelly. So, um, yeah, that's knocked me for six, that. Lovely person. Was Kerry Ike. And um, may, may she rest in peace. And um, send out some love and some strength to, uh, to her family who will be missing her terribly. Of course they will. Back in a moment. Music from the stunning on the Richie Allen show. The time is 27 minutes past the hour. Well, so the Irish government then is pushing ahead with a new law to criminalise, quote, hate speech, right, following the recent stabbing of four people in Dublin, including children, by an Algerian resident in the country. Now, the question has been asked many times, what does speech or hate speech or any speech have to do with preventing crimes like the one we saw in Dublin? Ireland has basically garnered, as I said earlier on, the attention of the international media because of its uh, proposed draconian hate speech laws. Let's welcome back to the programme to discuss this and more the President of Ireland's Freedom Party, the Irish Freedom Party, I should say, Herman Kelly. Herman, welcome back to the programme. How are you? Richie, great to hear your voice. How are you keeping? And it's great to hear you, pal. I'm not bad. How are you? <laughs> Very good. Tell well, me. Yeah, you were just asking the question there, yeah. what is hate speech? Hate speech is is speech that the government hates. Very very simple. Simple as that. Is it? If it's something that, yeah. Go ahead. This legislation is going to be used by the government to suppress free transmission of ideas and discussions about important matters by the Irish people. It will be used by the government to well. They see that in the uh, polls of public opinion, for example. Just one example, 75% of the people are opposed to more immigration coming into Ireland. They want to keep on pumping, uh, priming the pump and keep on pumping people into Ireland. So instead of saying, you know what, the people are unhappy about this, they they never give consent to the colonisation of our country. They're getting tired of it. We'll have to change policy. No, it reminds me a little bit of that. What was the Danish playwright? It wasn't blocked, uh, but the, the 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 people have disappointed, and they'll have to elect get a new people. That uh, this whole thing, they intru- it will be used to silence people, to shut them up. Like what they do at the minute is just call them names. Like uh, we see Helen McEntee, we call she's the Irish Minister for Justice. Uh, we call all the people who come into Ireland and commit crimes, the unvetted males, so many of them come into Ireland. We call them Helen's felons. I think it has quite a ring to it. <laughs> it does, yeah. um, she was asked today, well, what is far right? She calls everybody who disagrees with her far right. She was asked last week in the Senate for a definition. It was basically anybody, any, anybody who she described as anti-government, anti-state, uh, anti-immigration, anti like all these vague generalities. And she's going to, uh, all she has is name call. Another very dangerous aspect of the legislation is it takes away the principle of equality of all citizens before the law 
and it replaces that with this dangerous axiom that uh, certain groups, certain identity groups chosen by the Irish government have privileges over other citizens. Protected they status. Can say, yeah. Oh, yeah, protected Irish uh, identity groups. Uh, oh, but we feel offended by those words. Oh, you feel offended. Oh, that well, then that was hate speech. Uh, and call the police, call the police, please. I feel offended. So th- instead of policing our streets, the Gardaí, as they're called in Ireland, will be there to police our speech. And uh, we can see that throughout history, that it's often one person or a small group of people who have had a huge impact on history in civilization, civilizing people from a, a state of barbarism, like for example, the, the state of slavery, uh, stopping slavery. The number of people who were opposed to that at the beginning was very small, but they spoke up, they made their arguments clear and they won the people over. Uh, like for that black people have the vote in America was a minority view at the time. People had free speech, they used the free speech and they won the people over. So very often it can be one person or a small group of people who can convince people by their arguments that, you know what, that's not good enough, we have to change. So it does show the, the power and importance of free speech. And the third reason why it's bad is because it's completely unnecessary. There are already on the books in Ireland laws against incitement to violence, laws against incitement to hatred, laws against, well, it was a defamation. So if you're defamed, if someone is threatening violence with you, that can be either a criminal case or a civil case, and you can take these people to court. Uh, Anti-free speech laws, and you see my language, I never call it, anti-hate laws. It's anti-free speech laws introduced by the government to give the government more power. And they are completely unnecessary and I believe very, very dangerous. They're very dangerous. Something I said at the outset of the concept of hate speech, so long before Ireland's government decided to, to, to push forward with this, some years ago we began to hear hate speech in the lexicon, hearing it everywhere. And I, I suppose I'm, I'm very... I, I was always very left-leaning back in the day before I knew any better, you know. Yeah. These days yeah, I wouldn't describe myself as anything, yeah. <laughs> but um, I I, um, I remember at the time saying, but doesn't somebody have the right to hate whatever he or she wants to hate or detest or disagree with or completely oppose, so long as they are not acting on that in a criminal way? You see, I, I used to make this analogy. I knew an Italian yeah. man many years ago. He was a great, great friend of mine. Um, we used to be known as um, uh, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel's son. I didn't have much of a father. And I was in my early yeah. teens and this lovely old Italian gentleman who lived next door to me kind of um, adopted me. And up until he died, we used to go for long walks talking about the world. And he was lovely. But I'll tell you, Herman, he was definitely a racist. Like he had no time yeah. for black people. And yeah. uh, I always tell this story because I used to say, well, what should have been done with my friend Egidio? Like, should he have been locked up because he didn't have much time for black people? Or should we have taken yeah. him for the sum of all of his parts? Yes, he had antiquated yeah. opinions on the one hand, but he certainly never acted on them. He didn't bother anybody. Yeah. He wasn't chasing black people around Waterford shouting at them. You know, and, and yeah. there's nuances to these things. So <laughs> what, why shouldn't Probably somebody... Probably at the time he couldn't find any. <laughs> no, he couldn't find any. No, no. But, but why... You know, this whole concept of how can you criminalise even hate? So let's, let's even just pretend that... I hate some group or other. Imagine I hate trans yeah. people. Imagine I do. Yeah. But what business is that of any government? 
None. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I've lost it, you a bit, haven't I? I've lost you. I've lost George you. Orwell, yeah. 1984, the concept of thought crime. Yes. And it actually does, this legislation actually introduces the concept of thought crimes into Irish law. Because if, like, for example, if you're caught with a spicy meme, like, like you, you would, it's hard to believe. It's so extreme and draconian. Yeah. It's for, it's hard to believe. The rest of the world are sitting around in, well, I wouldn't say stunned silence, but they are stunned and they're speaking up about it all over America and in Europe and Britain. Thank God, people outside Ireland are speaking up very strongly against this dangerous legislation and the uh, thought crime. If you have a spicy meme on your phone or your or, or on your computer that someone has sent you or or that you have created even without passing this let's say thought crime meme around the guardie on suspicion of that can come to your place demand to see your your uh, your computer or your phone and if you don't hand over the password you, you can have a 12 month i believe a 12 month penalty in jail Yes. Like for a thought crime, without even passing on this meme to someone else, without even communicating this meme to another person, you can be done for a thought crime. Which is why I told my rambling story. Yeah, we, 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 exactly. You, you've nailed it. That's what it is. It's more thought policing, and ultimately, it's intended to impose the most insidious form of censorship, isn't it? Self censorship. That's what it's meant to do: to shut people and, up and to make people yeah, feared uh, of, of speaking out and saying what it is they really think. Yeah. And another aspect which is dangerous is that this legislation uh, and also it's related to the Digital Services Act, which comes from the e actually th this anti free speech legislation and Article two of the legislation, it makes clear that it comes from an EU framework. So they're basically transposing it into Irish law, this EU framework. But anyway, this legislation will be used along with the Digital Services Act, which has to do with online uh, censorship, which come laws, which come from the EU. It'll be used by this group called, the new group in Ireland called Cusin the Main, uh, and it will be basically a new censorship board for the whole of Europe, because many of these tech companies, be it Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube, etc., many, if not, well, if not all of them, many of them, are headquartered in Ireland. Their servers are located in Ireland. And uh, so it will be the Dublin offices of Cousin Namian, which will be responsible for censorship across so the you whole don't think of it's the a European Union. That's a very good point. So, so many of these tech companies are headquartered in Dublin. So you don't believe it's a coincidence that the Irish government is the first to go big on free on you know anti-free speech laws you think it's connected you think the two things it's all connected in article two of the hate speech legislation it tells you in black and white that this is implementation of an eu framework so the, it's not speculation they're actually proud of it and they tell you themselves Herman Kelly is our guest. Herman is the president of the Irish Freedom Party. The website for the party is irishfreedom.ie. Once again, irishfreedom.ie. Tell me about, and no better man than you to talk about this, the referenda or the two referendums yes. that are scheduled for our country next year. And one of them has got to do with the place of the woman uh, in Irish society uh, and changing yeah. of wording of well, tell us about this and why is it important? Well, there's 
two referenda on the same day, which is March the 8th. They have been heavily promoted by the NGO class in Ireland, uh, these so-called non-government organisations, which are which uh, the government sends 8% of all taxpayers' money to these NGOs every year, total budget of 6 billion euro. Basically, the first part is to erase the words uh, mother and woman in the only occasions, that in, in, in the only text in which they arrive, or sorry, exist in the Irish constitution. So the only places in which the words woman and mother exist in the, in the Irish constitution, they want to erase them on both occasions. I think it's article 41.3, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so the consequences of this, and we know, we can see over the last number of years, the whole idea of trans sexual ideology and gender theory is being imposed not only in the education system but also through the legal system and i believe that this is uh, a move which the end up will be that uh, on the birth certificate and in you can see health services and through legislation there are moves to remove uh, the word mother and woman and i believe the, con the end consequence of this or one of them will be that on the birth certificates it will change from being mother and father to eventually, as they have it in Spain already, parent one and parent two. And who knows down the line it may be even different types of relationships. Or that that the, the second part. Uh, what there? I'll finish this part. Of course, uh, mother and woman are biologically based. They're they have a biological basis in reality, as we have in the world. Gender ideology, uh, transsexual uh, ideology, that is an ideology. And if you have ever looked up a guy, Dr. John Money, who who was instrumental in founding these ideas, it's incredibly dangerous. It was actually based on the sexual abuse of two young brothers, both of whom who committed committed suicide in their 30s if people want to go and google dr john money uh but only erasing woman and motherhood from the constitution i believe is very dangerous because it ignores the biological reality of the family and uh, like no country has a future without children and children come from sexual union between a man and a woman and it's not just to do with love care like i like I have animals. I, 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 if I had a dog, I would look after the dog. I care for the dog. But me and the dog will not be having any children. Uh, so there is a uniqueness, a unique fecundity between the rela sexual relationship between a man and a woman, which cannot be replaced by any other type of relationship. So it's unique, and it gives a unique good to the, to the country. And that's why the state should protect the institution of marriage, a union, a sexual union between men and women. Bottom line is because it gives the good of children to the whole of the country, of which there's no continuity unless it's children. Second aspect is that the government is trying to push through is getting rid of the uh, of uh, marriage, or sorry, of the family based on marriage. Basically, they want to get it to any stable relationship at all. Now, if I was cynical, you can be cynical, and ask, well, any stable relationship of care, does that mean 
what does that exactly mean? Is man and his girlfriend, who, is it the girlfriend for a year, two years? What is it? Uh, is it a man and his two girlfriends? Uh, is it a man and, you know, is it polyamory? Or, uh, like it's so aqueous about stable relationship uh, that it opens that up to anything and everything. And do you know what? It came out in an interview there a few days ago by a Fine Gael MEP, sorry, PD called Neil Richmond, where he talks about the redefinition of the family is extremely important when it comes to immigration because family reunification, it widens the definition of family. And so anybody who comes in looking for family re reunification, if they get a toehold in Ireland and then they apply uh, to for all their family to come, well, their family just increases from just them and their wife to uh, a stable relationship that could be then, possibly at least, them, them, themselves, their wife, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, uh, any children they may have elsewhere. Like that just hugely increases the width of what family means. And therefore family reunification means it, it, it's a free for all basically, isn't it? So you think that's the rationale behind it, but it sounds, I mean, I, I mean, obviously this has been a big year in Ireland for migration. By the way, you're listening to Herman yes. Kelly. I mean, I, I heard, please confirm this for me or, or, or tell me it's wrong. But I heard that something like 20% of people in Ireland today and we're a population of just over 5 million, but 20% of the population wasn't born there. Is that true That's as right. far as you understand it? It's true, yeah. We've just been checking out the last few days because we're doing a paper about uh, the party and immigration for GRIPT. And we went back and double-checked that. And yet 20% of the Irish population at the minute, according to the CSO, which is the census organisation in the country, the uh, government census uh let's say, agency, even they say the official figures are that 20% of the people living in Ireland at the minute are born outside the country. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me let, turn the tables, Richie, yeah. and I'll ask you a simple question. If do you, do you think that if you came to Ireland illegally, so you're in the country illegally and you know it, do you think if a form came into a flat where you were staying, a census form, that you had to fill in, put your name and uh, all your contact details of who you are, where you're from. Do you think as an illegal person you would fill in that census form? Yeah, I get where you're going with this. The answer is no. So yeah. you reckon the, the real number might be yeah. higher? So even, the, right. even the, so the official figure is 20%, but the CSO almost kind of hint that, or say that these are figures for the people who fill in the census form. The chances of people who come to Ireland filling in those forms are, I would say, very close to zero. And we do know that 61% of people who are, arrive in Dublin airport to seek asylum do not come without any passport at all. So they are in the country illegally. They have no documentation. Is that a fact, Herman? Um, Can I, you just go back on that? A, it's a fact. That's, Did you say 60%? 61%. I've got nothing on them to, to identify them or where they've come yes. from. Nothing. No ID. And then on top of that 61%, it, but it's unstated the percentage of how many people have uh, a false ID. So on top of the 61%, which is no ID, you also have a certain percentage, which we're not told, of a false ID. And then many people come in, they go, they go to Belfast, they get a bus down to Dublin, they arrive in the 
uh, Asylum iPass Centre in Dublin. I, I, I believe it's over 70% those who have come without any ID in total. So I, I will give you some astounding statistics. Since 1995, in 1995 in Ireland, in Ireland South, the population was 3.6 million people. It is currently over 5.1 million people. That means in less than 30 years, since 1995, the population of Ireland has increased by 1.5 million people, or it has increased by 42%. Isn't that incredible? 42%. I was working at um, WLRFM in Waterford in 1998 when we began to see large numbers of people arriving in Waterford, in Tremor, which um, you'll know, but some of our listeners might not know, is a very well-known seaside resort in in Ireland, in the southeast. And at the time, again, being very trade unionist and very lefty, I would have been scathing in my condemnation of people who criticised this. Not because I was a virtue signaller, but I genuinely thought, well, you know, these people, God love them, they're fleeing some pretty shitty situation. And, you know, we fled ourselves over the centuries to countries where we found um, a home and we found some place to work. That's how I saw it at the time. But I see it a bit differently now, of course. I see what, why, maybe why it's happening and the huge problems, of course, with it. Yeah. It's, it's actually the, the change in the left. We used to be very concerned about the conditions and wages of working class right. people. Yeah. Has now morphed into this, they disregard working class people and what their wages and conditions are now. And now it's all about the woking class and all this middle class, very sexual orientated stuff about identity. And they've completely ignored and forget about working class people and their conditions because large amounts of cheap labor coming into a country as that uh, American economist Paul Krugman has shown, uh, it lowers the weight, it increases competition, it lowers, uh, let's say, wage bargaining power of working class people, their wages drop. And as so many people come into the country as well, demand for housing goes up. And as demand goes up and supply remains stable, prices of houses and rents for apartments go up. So the conditions uh, that mass uncontrolled immigration, large numbers of immigration into a country, decreases the wages, increases the house prices. And on top of that, you also have, and that's why there was trouble in Ireland there a few weeks ago, is that if you take in a large number of unvetted males who have no family, they have no stability, they don't have their parents uh, beside them, there's no young woman there, what you have and what you have had in Ireland, what you have had across the whole of Europe, be it Sweden, Italy, France, the UK, is that large numbers of unvetted males have in- led to an increase in crime, uh, in, in, in sexual assault and in serious crime. Can I stop and you there, Herman? Also and ask you, can, yes. can, because I want to get to the bottom of this because I don't know what's true and what isn't true. So look, I obviously know that there, there, there have been some very high-profile cases in Ireland where um, where women have been attacked by men who have recently arrived in the country. But what I'd like to know is a couple of things. Um, has the Have we seen a an overall increase in sexual crimes against women? And has anybody done the logistical homework to determine whether or not that men arriving from outside of Ireland 
are some way in some way more likely to commit crimes than men in Ireland because that's academic work. And I wonder if anybody now you might say what's the point, Richie? But I would say there's a good point there. So I'd like there's to know. Very, is, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Answer. Do, do, do we know I, the answer? I'll definitely answer it now. There's a very good point. The reason why. Well, let, let let me just get down to it. Actually, I have someone on my Twitter, which is. Um, give me a second. Which is Herman? Well, my Twitter is at uh, Herman Kelly. H e r m a n n Kelly. So basically, I did put up there during the week about the stats of. Uh, I'm just trying to look for it there actually. Uh, so basically, there was twelve. Like, let me give you a few very clear examples, right? So it's not my opinion. It's it's the statistics. It's not my opinion. Now I'll I'll let's say preform the whole thing by saying that the Irish government do, has up until this point not collected the ethnicity or nationality of the people who commit crimes, right? But they, they said this week they, they will start doing it. But anyway, in Ireland at last year, there was 12 women who were murdered. Uh, 12 women who were murdered. Five of those were murdered by non-Irish nationals. So as a percentage of people, it's is non-nationals make up 20% of the population, but they make up 40% of people who committed murder or murder of women last year. Yeah, but so how recently a- How recently were they um, settled in Ireland? These are all, there's so many things you could extrapolate there because I'm interested in yes. this. Well, 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 the five of them, uh, five of them all needed interpreters for court. That doesn't necessarily tell you that they couldn't speak English. Yeah. It, it it tends to give you that. It would tend to give me that impression that they couldn't speak English. Uh, we see. I'm, tr- I'm just trying to get the other things as well. Uh, but, but while you're doing that, let me just say this because I'll get hammered. But I I I yes. it's my job to play the devil's advocate, and you're you're of well course. used to it anyway. I'll get hammered. Look, I understand there is a problem if you allow a lot of young men, right? Young men who what 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 the young men want to do? They want to meet women. They want to have sex. And if you allow men come in from various parts of the world, you drop them into a place. And, um, you, you know, maybe the local female population is maybe not too excited about these guys being around. I can see why it's going to lead to problems. I can see why there might be an increase in sexual offences against women. So I do acknowledge this, but I also want to be thorough about it because, yes. uh, because you look, I know you've been accused of it. And, and I've had guests from Ireland whose politics would be described as conservative who are accused of really doing a very good job of masking either nimbyism, not in my backyard, or masking some sort yes. of, you know, deep kind of route to dislike for, for John, yes. Johnny Farner, which I'm well, not accusing you well, of now, Herman, at all, by the yeah. way. Yeah. I, look, I, I understand and, and, and what your job is. And, like, it's, it's on my Twitter, and it is the official statistics from the Gardaí, etc., and it's taken from... Uh, from the official figures, uh, I, I just can't find it there at the minute. But I do remember, and I was on BBC Ulster there on the Friday uh, after those three kids were stabbed there uh, two weeks ago in Dublin, that I do remember off the top of my head, there's two articles, both on the BBC. One that is that, and I'm just saying that it would be naive, I believe it would be very naive to believe that what has happened in countries like Germany and France and Italy and Sweden, for example, will not also or is already not happening in Ireland. And there's two reports I remember off the top of my head, both reported on the BBC. One 
was that a government report done, done government-sponsored report done uh, at a university using the official crime statistics from Lower Saxony, which is an average German state. And I found between uh, 2015 and 2016 that in that one year, there had been a 10% increase in crime and 92% of, of that serious crime was carried out by newly arrived immigrants. And another article in the BBC showed that uh, Swedish television, uh, sorry, I, I forget the, the year, people can Google it, it's easy to find, uh, that of the rapes carried out in Sweden, 58% of those rapes were carried out by uh, men who were not born in Sweden. So the sexual assault and the serious crime in other countries that, that non-nationals or new migrants coming into the, those countries have had a serious impact on, on the crime figures. And I, I just, I'm just suggesting that we would be naive to think that Ireland was some kind of outlier, that it wouldn't happen in Ireland where it's happened everywhere else. I've had a really interesting message from Paddy Sharkey. He's in Wicklow. How are you, Paddy? I've just um, emailed him to let him know I'll be in touch because he's written a letter to the um, Irish Times, which was published last Monday. Very, very thoughtful, very thoughtful and thought-provoking letter about immigration. But there's a staggering standout statistic there, and it's about the percentage of non-nationals in Ireland uh, compared to the UK, France and Germany. Because in France and Germany... It's um, around about fourteen percent. Here it's twenty percent. I mean that is quite yeah, amazing, right. you know. And it's a balanced letter. He talks about how in the past, you know, we've had benefits from migration, like we've needed people to come in and fill various roles and jobs, and you know it's worked at various times. But basically, yeah. what what he's seen in recent years, along with the budget cuts, the inflation, the mismanagement of our health and housing sectors, now it's getting very serious. Very very good letter uh, by Paddy, who's lis- listening to this with. Um, with great interest. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Can, can I say that there's one stark difference between the UK and Ireland when it comes to debate about immigration? Basically, in the UK, it's happened over a much longer period of time, and there's been a, a much longer and uh, open uh, discussion about it, uh, about the whole idea of immigration and numbers and where these people come from. Whereas in Ireland, and and yet in, in Britain, the figure is 14%. Ireland is much higher, it's 20%. But in Ireland, it's happened much more quickly and virtually without any debate about the issue of immigration has been virtually verboten uh, over until pr- pretty much the last year. And all you get from the uh, politicians in Ireland and on the broadcasting in the media is a, a regime of name calling to anybody who would question the safety of huge numbers of unvetted males coming into the country and the cost. I'll give you an idea. Just for asylum seekers uh, in for for next year, the state has already said it's going to cost the Irish taxpayer €4 billion. Euro. Like that's an awful lot of money that could be used for public services and education and health care and in housing. But it's going to look like I, I just don't under I find it very difficult to defend that the Irish taxpayer should like workers should get up and go in the morning to provide free housing for people from, I don't know, Afghanistan, wherever, Somalia, West Africa, anywhere yeah. around the world. Like they're not. 
I don't believe that these people are responsibility. And if they come in, and especially if they lie to us, they don't even tell us their identity or where they're from. I don't think, I don't feel certainly an up, any moral obligation to provide free stuff for people who come in and lie to me. And I will make, right, you're 100% right in saying, do you know what, Herman, we need analysis, not just anecdote, but analysis of the crime figures so we can point that this that that there's a causal link that I'm arguing between uh, large numbers of unvetted uh, immigration and an increase in crime, sex assault and serious crime. But for for 100% certainty, it is true that Ashleen Murphy, a beautiful girl who was murdered two years ago in the middle of the day in Tullamore as she was running along the canal by a, a guy who came a Slovak Roma came into our country, lived in the, this guy, Joseph Puska, he was convicted two weeks ago of murder. Uh, this beautiful girl of 23 was murdered by a guy who lived in our country for 10 years, who contributed nothing, who got a free five-bedroom house from the, from the taxpayer, who never worked a single day in his life. And how did he think his children got free education at our expense? He got free housing, free welfare. He contributed nothing except the murder of this beautiful young Irish woman. Ashley Murphy would be alive today if that guy had not been, that unvetted male had not been allowed into our country. There's no disputing that, Herman. Thanks for coming, for coming back on the programme. Herman can be found. The party is irishfreedom.ie. You've been listening to Herman Kelly, president of the Irish Freedom Party. Uh, Herman, in, in because we've, I've only got probably this week and next week, um, it'll be the new yeah. year before we speak again. So on behalf of the programme, thanks for coming on and Merry Christmas. Nolly Conagwit to you, you and your family. Nolly all the best, Herman. Bye for now. Herman Kelly, President of the Irish Freedom Party, live on Monday's Richie Allen Show. Um, thanks, Herman, for coming on. Right. Um, thank you for your messages, by the way, too. Lots of messages coming in. I'm going to read out a few of those now. A uh, number of you making reference to the fairly tragic news that Kerry Ike, who would be David Ike's, would have been David Ike's daughter, um, has passed away today. Shocking news, really. Um, her brother Gareth posting on Twitter saying that um, she'd had an illness that she'd kept pretty much to herself. She hadn't spoken about it and she'd passed away. Um, all I can say, and it's the last time I'll speak about this because it's pretty shocked. It's, it shook me up, to be honest. What a lovely, lovely person she was. In fact, I've just had a look there. It was only a couple of months ago we were chatting away on Twitter. She's an all year round swimmer. Um, she was an all year round swimmer. God love her. And um, she posted a photograph of her swimming and I'd made the point to her that, you know, last time you were posting photographs was in January, February in the freezing cold. The weather's a bit better now. And we chatted then a bit on private message for a few minutes. But um, yeah, lovely lady. And again, nothing but best wishes um, and condolences to, uh, to David, to Linda, to Jamie and to Gareth and to Kerry's children uh, as well. Okay. Um, music and then back with with, with your comments and uh, Kevin Barrett will be on the programme shortly as well then. The Richie Allen Show is the world's most popular independent news radio show. Listen on demand via your regular podcast provider. CeeLo Green and Bright Lights Big Bigger City. 
on the Richie Allen Show. As the time is coming up for five minutes past the hour of five o'clock, Kevin Barrett, truthjihad.com, will be on the programme in around about ten minutes' time. We'll talk about the latest situation in Gaza, which is horrendous, really. But I want to talk to Kevin about something we discussed last time he was on. Um, they're, they're At the outset of, back in October, there was a lot of debate around what happened on October 7th. And in the, I don't know if you want to say in the, I hate to say community, there is no community because I'm a sole operator. I don't have any community. I'm not part of any community. But if there is an independent media, and again, I'm, I'm not even sure there is really, the, um, in fact, speaking of David Icke, David Icke has been speaking recently about something that he and I used to speak about years ago. And I have been speaking about for three years, the mainstream alternative media. You've heard me bore on and bore on and bore the piss out of you over the years about how the establishment creates its own opposition. The cabal, well, it must do. And we see this during COVID. We see a number of people who had more than serious links to the mainstream media all of a sudden becoming very prominent in seemingly taking on the cabal and seemingly challenging the narrative. And I talked about this at the time and I warned about it. You know, Pied Piper figures I call these people. And I know that David Icke has been writing about this because somebody sent me a link to something he'd done about it. And I thought to myself, well, that's something we spoke about years ago. And in fact, I'm going to say it. Nobody has spoken more about this in recent years than me. Then, you know, how grifters see people's serious concerns about the world that's unfolding around them. Grifters see this as a monetary opportunity, okay? And as David Icke has mentioned, I think he mentioned this after he'd been, he, he appeared, I think, with James Dellingpole somewhere. Uh, in Manchester, it might have been. And he did this thing where he said, we've, we've, we've had a whole raft of new truthers emerge in the past three years. And uh, again, it was something I, I, I was talking about in, in 2020. People who see an opportunity where people are really, really, really concerned about the dystopia manifesting itself. And they want to be assured that they're not losing their minds. And that's where the grifter comes in. To tell you that you're right and to talk about, you know, I don't know, nanotechnology and the vaccines and all of this stuff. Tell you everything you want to hear for a price. You know, followers and money and subscriptions and all the rest of it. I know David Icke's been talking about it recently. And I don't want to get into it in any great depth here. But yeah, yeah. Uh, eight minutes past the hour. But anyway, why, why did I segue? Yeah, so you, you've had this. And I suppose the, the, the genocide in Gaza has revealed a lot of these grifters to be grifters. We've seen it, you know, as the ones who were all free speech. They were all for free speech during COVID. They were for the right to free thought, the right to express yourself. And now many of these grifters have gone, have gone all in on supporting Israel in its genocide against the people of Palestine. So you know, you know who I'm talking about. You know their names, right? But anyway, back in the wake of October 7th, there was a lot of debate about whether, you know, Hamas actually pulled it off or they didn't. And Kevin took the position at the time, 
Kevin Barrett, our friend, and my colleague, he took the position that it was a great triumph for Hamas. We had an argument about this back when we spoke about it. But I'm wondering if he's changed his mind because a number of things have emerged since then. A number of um, facts, I suppose you could you, you could say, it, with respect to what happened on the day. So we'll have a chat with Kevin about that and where he thinks this is all going to end up because what's happening at the moment is Gazans, Palestinians have been blown to bits left, right and centre. And it's been going on now for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, the British media dare not, really. Sky has pushed it out a little bit. Sky has pushed the boat out a little bit in terms of it's gone after some of these um, idiots who appear to 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 justify it. Like Mark Regev and, and uh, Tippi Hotavelli, that moron who's the the Israeli ambassador to the UK, they've come in for a bit of stick on Sky, but largely, largely, you know, they, um, um, the media pushes the Israeli narrative and doesn't make any room at all for, um, for, for, for any nuanced debate about why the situation has endured for so many years, what happened 75, 80 years ago, and so on. As the time is 10 minutes past the hour, I said I'd read your comments, so I'm going to do that now. Thank you for them. You can leave a message for me via the website richieallen.co.uk or via my app, the Richie Allen Show app. Hi to Scottish John. Hi, John. He says, what about Jeremy Bowen being removed from Gaza at the behest, the orders? of Israel, says John. Yes, John. The Israelis calling the shots when it comes to the media coverage. Not only that, but we know the Israelis have murdered um, at least a dozen, if not many more journalists in uh, the region. Uh, I suppose they justified by saying it was friendly fire. Yeah, hi to Bob, who says, Richie, something big is coming soon, I believe. It was a conspiracy over 20 years ago when they said the new world order will be established through chaos and civil war. It seems pretty factual to me now. They will create a problem and swoop in and promise to protect us from it, just like the BBC documentary you spoke of, says Bob. Well, there have been a number of articles in recent days and weeks about an attack in the form of a cyber attack from a hostile actor that would would cripple the grid here in the UK and plunge us into darkness. There's also been a lot of talk about how a solar flare or solar flares could bring about the same eventuality and why we would be in dystopia. I I talked about this on the Papers podcast this morning. So are they preparing something major, some big internet outage? I don't know, mate, but nothing would surprise me, to be honest, you know. Nothing would surprise me, you know. Gillian, thanks for your message. I appreciate it. Yeah. I've had better days, to be honest. And it's really knocked me hearing that news about Kerry. I wouldn't describe myself now as a close personal friend of Kerry's. I wouldn't. But I spent a lot of time in the company of David Icke. David lived with Caroline and myself in London for a year. And I would have spent time on the Isle of Wight with David. I would have met Kerry many times. We spent a weekend. uh, The family... And and me and friends of the Ikes in Amsterdam when David was speaking there and I got to know Kerry quite well and she was a lovely, lovely person. It shocked me really. Uh, three or four years younger than me, I would reckon. Uh, very young. And he and his family will be suffering tonight. So again, uh, thank you for the message that I will pass them on to uh, 
to Gareth later on, but they've been deluged, I believe, by messages from people offering love and sympathy and compassion, and that's a nice thing. Okay. Right. Shall we get Kevin Barrett on the programme, shall we? Shall we get Kevin on? Let's get Kevin on. We love Kevin. Kevin it is. Right. Um, 17,700. Actually, let me stop that now and do this. It's a Monday, isn't it? And uh, when you're a little bit under the weather, uh, let's see, I've just done something stupid. But I'm going to rectify it now and do it properly. Here we go. Brilliant. Now I've done it properly. Okay, let's get Kevin on. I don't need to tell you anything you don't already know about Kevin Barrett. Kevin is a broadcaster, an author, a researcher, an academic. He's an all-around good guy. Truthjihad.com, kevinbarrett.substack.com. Let's welcome back to the programme our friend Kevin Barrett. Now he's gone. Let's see, can we get him on there? Are you on, Kevin? Are you there, Kevin? No. Apparently he's in the process of leaving me a voice message. Now, I don't care if it sounds like car crash. What I'm going to do is I'm going to persevere. I'm going to ring and ring and ring and ring and ring until we get him on the line, Kevin Barrett. If not, we'll have to do it. You are trying to. Ah, for some reason. I know what we're going to do. We're going to take a tune. Are we going to take a tune? Kevin, are you there? Uh, yes, hello, Richard. Ah, thank God. There's witchcraft afoot, I think, Kevin. Witchcraft. Do you know what it is, mate? It's me. I'm an idiot. There's Skype are having a problem lately. I, this is a public service message for all of our listeners, by the way. If you're using your computer to phone somebody on Skype, like your laptop, but you've also got your Skype on a phone or something, it's um, it becomes it makes mischief when you try to ring somebody. You need to have your Skype closed on all your other devices. Sign out of them. I think that's what happened to me there, Kevin. I was signed in on my iPhone. Listen, welcome back and thanks for being here. How are you? I'm well. It's uh, I'm glad we succeeded in connecting. Yeah, because it's very important. Because especially in the UK media, apart from Sky News, briefly to be fair to Sky, briefly one of its reporters in Gaza last week did report openly and wasn't prevented from doing so that the Israelis were firing upon journalists and men and women as they were running um, down a street as they were being told to evacuate. Um, a village or a town or or whatever. Seventeen thousand seven hundred people dead now, at least. Um, nine or ten thousand children. I don't know what it is. I I don't know if I've been desensitized to violence, Kevin, because as a journalist you're exposed to so much of it. But how can we speak of these things and not break down in tears? What's wrong with us? I mean, this is horrendous, yeah. isn't it? Or or yeah, or anger, and you know how. How can people who have power to try to do something about this not be doing anything? It's uh, it's just really uh, frustrating. I, I think that the, there will be a lot of, um, let's say, pushback from this. There'll be a, a lot of repercussions for quite some time. But it's it's part, and I think the repercussions may be even greater because of the lack of action right now. As we witness this genocide that's being televised every day. And that in my part of the world, kind of everybody is just watching hundreds of children being slaughtered every day by these Zionists. It's uh, it's just mind boggling, and I, I fear for the safety of some of my of my Jewish friends. I mean, this is you know there there is that hadith in the prophetic literature in Islam that says that at the you know at the end of times or you know late in the day, the the rocks and trees will cry out, "There's a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him." 
And that, that sounds pretty harsh, but frankly, that's how billions of people are going to be feeling pretty soon. That won't do anything for the, for the, do I say mood? That will make a lot of Jewish people nervous. And we've got Jewish listeners to this program. They should be nervous. They should be very nervous. Well, hang on a second. We're talking about, I live in Manchester in Salford. My my neighbours are Jewish. My accountants are Jewish. They're not responsible for what's happening in Gaza, Kevin. Absolutely not. That's right. And that's why I say I fear for them. And for so, I think the great majority of Jewish people are not really any more guilty of this than you and I are, you know, maybe a little more because most of them are, you know, speaking out the way we do. Yeah. Um, but, but still the fact is that when, you know, the Jewish state is committing this, the biggest televised genocide in the history of the world, um, it's, it's creating a situation where naturally people are going to hate Jews in general, just like, you know, so many Jews, you know, hated Germans and so on after World War II. It's it's creating this long-term hatred. And just as a lot of Jews felt like they had to go hunt down Nazis and so on after World War II, you know, you can see why people who sympathize with the Palestinians, and that's many billions, are going to feel that way after this is over. I think, though, that any Muslim man or woman who takes the scripture you shared with us literally, well, that person is a dangerous person. They shouldn't be thinking about attacking Jewish people. An eye for an eye makes the world blind, not to mention that, as we both agreed, these Jewish people have nothing to do with it. In fact, many of them can be seen in Manchester at the weekends in Piccadilly. They're in London, in Leicester Square, opposing it, doing all they can to speak up about it. That's yeah, absolutely right. And I, I, I don't think that scripture should be, I don't think it's meant to be taken literally. I don't think that the idea was that rocks and, and trees would, would speak. That's, uh, I think that's obviously figurative uh, and symbolic. But yeah. what it's symbolic of is that things, you know, it's a prediction that things will reach a point where Jews are so blamed for things that it will be as if the inanimate objects were crying out. And it feels to me like that, that's how things are, are, are turning out. And again, you're right. It's, there are all sorts of people for, with Jewish heritage who are doing, really doing what they can to try to stop this. There are a whole lots of them. I mean, I, I have a bunch of friends who are, who are doing amazing work. Um, but that, and I think more, more people of Jewish heritage should follow in their footsteps and, and do more of that kind of work and not only to try to save the people of Gaza, but ultimately to save uh, the Jewish people in the future. Kevin, can I ask, um, you, you recently, not so recently, but recently enough, you and your lovely wife, Rabia, have relocated to Morocco. Uh, I spent a little bit of time in, in Morocco, just a little bit. Did, can you get any sense of how people in Morocco feel about it? Is there an outrage there? Are people talking about it on the news programmes and, and stuff? Yeah, there, there's this kind of submerged, suppressed outrage. Everybody is watching it intermittently, if not kind of addictively, uh, primarily on Al Jazeera. And at the same time, the government here is afraid of things spinning out of control. And so they there have been protests. There have been big protests uh, in the big cities, uh, Casablanca, Rabat, and Tangier, Three of them that I know about, but the uh, the Friday prayers 
have not been, at least the ones I've been to, and I've heard stories from elsewhere in Morocco, that you know, rather than having the the sermons on the during the Friday prayers, be very intense about this, they've kind of sidestepped it. You know, there may be some oblique references. I think the government here is uh, is very uncomfortable because they have, of course, been on this path to normalization with the Zionist entity, not because anybody here really wants to do that. Uh, the entire nation of Morocco sympathizes strongly with the Palestinian cause, but because that was sort of the only way to save what Morocco or its government sees as an existential issue, which is this um, issue of the legitimacy of the Moroccan Sahara and this struggle with Algeria. Again, that's that. So that's existential for the nation of Morocco. And they, they don't. Uh, but, but by going down this path of normalization, making a deal with the Americans that Morocco would recognize Israel and establish uh, normal diplomatic relations if the U.S. threw its weight behind Morocco's claims to the Moroccan Sahara, uh, that deal then left their government vulnerable to the popular outrage against the Zionists. And so now I think that they're they're in a really tough spot because, you know, they there's the prime uh, rather the the former prime minister, I think, the leader of the biggest opposition party, has been giving fire breathing uh, speeches, basically saying it's the duty of every Muslim to go and fight for Gaza. And you know, so the government's caught between a rock and a hard place. And this is this is just how it's been for you know since the creation of the genocidal Zionist entity in 1948. The entire region has been just horrified by this ongoing genocide of Palestine. I mean, the, the word Israel is just a euphemism for the genocide of Palestine. And the leadership, though, has been pressured really hard because the Zionists have so much power in the West, and the West has so much more power than the regional countries. And so it's it's been a situation where the leadership has been forced to compromise, forced to basically accept the Zionists most of the time, whereas the population of this region has never accepted Zionism, has never accepted the genocide of Palestine, and never will. The U.S. president has authorized 14,000 more tank shells to be sent to the region, and apparently bypassed, bypassed even the approval or the nod or the okay from Congress. It's quite amazing, really, when you think of what happened in the United Nations the other day when the U.S. vetoed the adoption of the resolution to demand a ceasefire there. I don't know what's going on in the States, Kevin. I know, obviously, you, you, you're you from the States. You've lived most of your life in the States. Um, it's hard to gauge the mood of people there. I mean, is it is it anywhere near the top of people's priority list in the United States, or are they too... You know, are they too wrapped up in the cost of living crisis and everything else that's going on? Well, I think the Americans have been so brainwashed by the false Zionist narrative that's been promulgated by the media, which is grotesquely disproportionately dominated by people of Jewish heritage who have at least some degree of sympathy with the Zionist cause, that that propaganda and brainwashing has distorted Americans' understanding of the issue so much that they're not nearly as uh, concerned about this as they should be. Um, I don't think they realize that this complicity in this genocide that's being televised and that people are watching, this this is going to leave a, a traumatic imprint on billions of people for generations. And the United States is setting itself up as an enemy 
of billions of people for generations. And in an era in which technology is changing to the point that it won't take very many people to create non-return to sender WMD pretty soon, the United States really better watch out. I don't know if that, I mean, that maybe the empire will fall long before that happens from other causes. But it's, uh, you, you know, I'm, the hatred for what the government of the United States is doing in supporting this televised genocide is so off the charts, so far beyond anything I've ever experienced before. And I've been hanging around with people who were angry at the United States since I was a kid in the Vietnam War protests. But this is, this is now uh, uncharted territory. I mean, that I, I, I just can't imagine that the American leadership even has a grasp of what it's getting itself into now, the kind of hatred that's going to be created against the United States for generations and generations. On, on that, Patricia, who herself grew up in the United States, but has Irish heritage and is in Switzerland these days, she says, um, I read that more people in Gaza, including thousands of children, have been killed since October 7th. More uh, have been killed than American soldiers in Vietnam in the entire year of 1968. It's horrendous. And I've seen, I've seen even... Even here in the mainstream media, there's one guy, he's a deplorable presenter, his name is James O'Brien, works for LBC. He's normally on the wrong side of everything. But I, I, I did hear him today shouting at a listener who's very pro-Israel, pro-Zionism. He shouted at a listener, like, how many more will it take before you're happy, you know? How many more people who never raised a hand in anger against Israel? So maybe that's something to kind of grasp at and think, yeah. But the numbers are horrifying, Kevin. I mean, they are horrifying. I mean, nobody could deny now that this is ethnic cleansing. It just is, right? Simply. Oh, we've not lost it. It's not, it's not just uh, kind of this ethnic cleansing uh, in terms of you know, killing a few people to drive a large number out, as happened in 1948 and has happened elsewhere, where the you know, vast majorities of people uh, left and you know, a relatively smaller percentage were killed. Even That's even true of the uh, horrendous separation of India and Pakistan. But the now this they're just mowing people down. They say, this is just a deliberate decision to exterminate the seed of Amalek. I don't know if you've seen this, these like songs that the Israelis have been singing and posting proudly. Uh, we're marching into Gaza to exterminate the seed of Amalek. That's re referring to the Old Testament's injunction to Jews to exterminate the, this people of Amalek, kill them all, kill the men, the women, the children, the babies, and even their animals. And so the Israelis are proudly singing this and proudly blowing up uh, apartment complexes full of families and houses full of families, mosques full of people, hospitals full of people. Uh, I don't really think we've seen anything remotely like this. I mean, even the Americans in Fallujah weren't, weren't remotely this bad. And you know, they're, they're killing you know, more innocent people you know, in a week now in Gaza than the Russians killed in the year. You know, it, it's just off the charts and it's all happening in this little area. And I don't and want to depress of, you, Kevin. Yeah. I don't want to depress you, but nothing is going to stop this. So whatever the Israeli end goal is, I should say, I should preface my remarks by saying, this is my opinion, but nobody is going to stop them. So whatever it is they plan on doing, they're going to do it. And I think... I, I don't I don't want to speak for you, you'll speak for yourself, but I think that people need to come to terms with this. It'll stop whenever Israel decides it stops, and that's the harsh reality. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, you may or may not be wrong, but it sounds awfully defeatist. You know, the real world 
is not one in which any particular group of people can just do anything at once. There are all kinds of constraints. And it's true that the Zionists have managed to create a situation where they face fewer constraints on them uh, than most people do. You know, sort of like Caligula created a situation for a while when he was emperor of Rome where he faced very few constraints. But eventually that kind of constraint-free, psychopathic, murderous, sadistic behavior catches up with you. And there are a lot of forces arrayed against the Zionists. And those forces thus far haven't been strong enough together to stop this slaughter. And you know, part of the reason probably is that the leaders of countries have to consider their in national interests. And it's they, you know, and then they'll also at some point be willing to, to sacrifice if necessary. But it, it you know, at this point, like why is it in the national interest of Iran, for example, to flatten uh, all of Israel's major cities and basically destroy Israel and then in return have Iran's major cities all taken out with nuclear weapons? Is that, uh, is that in their interest? Well, probably not. It's instead, if Iran kind of, you know, calibrates the response and punishes Israel to a certain extent, but, you know, saves most of it in reserve, while the Zionists dig their own grave in terms of their future legitimacy by committing the first you know, televised genocide, probably a hell of a lot worse than what is called the Holocaust ever was. And now it's all on TV live and billions of people are watching it. You know, this is, again, I don't think this is in the long term, maybe not even the medium term or even short term interests of the Zionists themselves. So uh, I don't think it's as simple as, oh, whatever they want to do, they're going to just get away with. It's not it's not remotely that simple. There are all sorts of forces out there pushing for their own, pushing each of their own agendas. And it's not going to end well for the Zionists. That I can tell you. Did you mean that it's televised worse than we saw the pictures from the from the concentration camps? Is that what you meant? Uh, no, it's just it's just plain worse. I mean, the, I can't I see how it could be worse, I've Kevin. Got, got in my in my worst imagination, I can't. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to accept that. What's happening in Gaza is comparable. Whatever the numbers, it's comparable. They're attempting to exterminate the people in Palestine. I've no doubt about that. But I don't see it as any worse than um, what happened in, in, in Germany in the 1930s. I can't see how that could be the case. Well, in the 1930s, there was no Holocaust. The official story has it that the Holocaust began in the summer of 1942. But, of course, the, the even the, you know... Movies about Anne Frank have to admit that the Germans fought very hard to keep Anne Frank alive, and she spent her last months in a German-run hospital where they desperately tried to keep her alive, and she finally succumbed to typhus. Uh, and I don't think the Israelis are trying to keep any Palestinians alive at all. They're destroying all of their hospitals. And I think that once you realize that, and then you go and read, go to unz.com, unz.com, and read Ron's work. Ron is a Jewish American uh, with uh, a very, very brilliant man. Read his work uh, on the Holocaust. Read his essay, Holocaust Denial. And you'll understand what I mean when I say what is going on in Gaza is vastly worse than what happened in during World War II and what came to be called the Holocaust. But, but I traveled in Germany. I visited Dachau. I traveled in Poland. I visited Auschwitz. I spoke to people who'd lived there, elderly German people. I can't see how interning or interring Jews and murdering them um, and attempting to wipe them out completely is any less worse than what's happening in Gaza. I would say they're comparable. If you attempt to wipe out a group of people for any reason, whatever the reason is, there's no good reason, um, 
it's about as bad as it gets. I, I can't I can't say I think what's happening in Gaza is worse than what happened in Germany. I don't believe that. Well, I, I think you're right. There's a close parallel in certain respects. It's an ethnic cleansing, absolutely. But I think that, in well, the background of the ethnic cleansing in Germany was that the target group, the victimized group, that is people labeled as Jews, many of whom actually fought for uh, in the German armies, by the way, uh, this notion that, you know, all German Jews and all Jews in German occupied territory were, you, all of them were just slated for as quick as possible extermination. That's ridiculous. I mean, why would they have kept Anne Frank alive for months in a hospital if that was what they were doing? Uh, so, but but the, the ethnic cleansing of Jews from Germany was essentially revenge against this feeling that they'd been stabbed in the back during World War One. And then also the fact that Jews were grotesquely overrepresented in all of the best kinds of positions in society, as well as the worst, the worst gangsters, human traffickers, drug dealers, prostitution, sex industry, organized crime in general, uh, as well as the best positions, the highest earning positions, the banks, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was a lot of resentment against Jews who were a disproportionately powerful group. They were the powerful group, and the Germans were less powerful than the Germans organized and persecuted and expelled no, the but Jews. No, but that's gross. But that's gross. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Victims who were invaded by a vastly more powerful force that was bent on their extermination. That is infinitely worse. I, I accept what you said about what's happening to the Palestinians, but you made some gross generalizations about the positions of Jewish people in Germany, and you know you did, and you're an academic. First of all, Jews are not a race. They're not now a race, nor were they ever a race. The Jews you refer to were Germans who observed Judaism. And it's a gross generalization to say that they had all the power in Germany, and you know that to be true. And I'll tell you something else, Kevin. Um, World War Two came out of, and you said it yourself, the brutal punishment of the, of the German state by the countries that defeated it in the First World War. And Jews had nothing to do with that either. Well, that's not what most of the Germans thought then. And I, again, read Ron Unz's revisionist work about World War II at unz.com. And then, you know, we can discuss... No, Why fair enough, fair enough. Wrong. But look, look, you you are way above as an academic saying to me, just go and read this article. You're way above that. I don't care what the Germans saw in the 1920s and 30s because they thought as they thought because of the relentless and disgusting propaganda against the Jewish people. And you know that to be true as well. No, I don't. Well, you do. I, 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 think I do. I know it to be true. That's a distorted picture. That's, prop, that's, that's the result of your having been force-fed ah, propaganda by the no, victor's, no, victor's no. history. I'm an independent thinker, Kevin. I don't take what I'm given in school, in high school. I don't take what I'm given by the media as fact. I do my own looking into it. And I, I, but I conclude it's different to you. And it's rather cheap of you, my great friend, and you'll remain my great friend, to say that I'm the victim of propaganda just because I see it differently than you do. That's not right. I see well, it I think differently. we all are. I mean, I, I w you know, I've been the victim of propaganda, too. And it's only in the last 10 to 15 years that I even started looking into these issues. And I was just utterly shocked and appalled by what I found about what I had been taught about World War II by the dominant culture, the media, uh, the predominance of scholarship. It's, it's all lies. It's all victor's history. Uh, they've turned everything upside down. The real story of World War II is radically, radically different from what we all have been force-fed in the West. I want to ask you about this, because um, we're not going to agree on that. I, I wanted to ask you back 
shortly after October 7th, we had a chat. It was nice and heated, which is great. I love a bit of that, to be honest, Kevin. We don't have enough of it. But um, not to be revisiting those arguments, but something you said at the time, which I took because it was your opinion, you thought it was a coup by Hamas on October 7th. Now, I want to ask you, have you revised that opinion? And the reason I ask this is because we've learned a few things since then. The first one being, I think, a very important one, that um, the lookouts, the mostly female lookouts, who um, are employed by the IDF to keep an eye on what's going on over the 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 prison fence, let's not call it a border because it isn't, um, they basically told their superiors that something very serious was going down. And they were threatened with court-martial if they didn't shut up. And when you factor in it took six hours for the IDF to respond, I'm beginning to think, Kevin, that it isn't beyond the bounds of possibility, and I can't prove this, it's just an opinion, that maybe it was allowed to happen. What do you think? Well, I think that's more likely than it seemed back on October 8th. As you say, a lot of interesting uh, evidence, or at least reports, have been coming out. I didn't see the one that you mentioned about uh, women being threatened with court-martial if they spoke out, but I, I did read Ronan Bergman's recent piece in the New York Times uh, from last week, in which he revealed that the top levels of the Israeli government supposedly had a very detailed outline of the plan that Hamas would put into action on October 7th. They had that a year early. For the whole year, uh, they sat on it. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Also, the put options, that is, people yes. with foreknowledge bet that Israeli stocks would plunge on October 7th. Who were those people? I don't think that was Hamas. So, do you know who it was, Kevin? Kevin, do you know who did it? Do you know who did the put options? Osama uh, bin Laden. Osama bin Laden did, Kevin. There you go. He yeah, must have done. Hilarious, <laughs> isn't it? No, no, thanks for, bring, thanks for reminding me. Yes, the put options are incredibly suspicious. But here you go. Jerusalem Post, November 19th. IDF lookouts who had warned their commanders they were concerned about the situation along the Gaza border in the months before October 7th were told to stop bothering them and threatened with a court-martial. Yeah. It's Very filthy. Filthy, yeah. isn't it? It's filthy, Kevin. Somebody knew and somebody thought, you know what, if we allow something happen, maybe, this is just my opinion, we can do, well, we can do whatever we want then in Gaza. Maybe. I don't think they wanted it to turn out the way it did. It's it's possible, but it's it really didn't, you know, I, I don't, I can't see how any strategist would think that this is beneficial to Israel. That is, Prior to October 7th, the Israelis were on the path to normalizing with the Saudis and with the Gulf region in general, which would have given them the upper hand against the Palestinians in perpetuity. Uh, and they also enjoyed a reputation as being pretty much unbeatable. And so today, that normalization plan is dead, very likely forever, and their reputation for being unbeatable is in tatters and they're being beaten militarily in Gaza even as we speak. Every day uh, we see video evidence of uh, up to dozens of Israeli tanks and other military vehicles being destroyed by Hamas. We have, it seems the Israeli casualties are vastly higher than the official ones and, and this has been leaking even in Israel now. Uh, so this, this war has been a disaster, especially the hostages. You know, Hamas would have had over 700 hostages if Israel had not invoked uh, mass Hannibal, that is this Hannibal directive to kill hostages as well as hostage takers to prevent the political liability of hostages. 
And so they declared mass Hannibal, and that's the direct uh, words used by an Israeli Air Force officer in an interview describing the fact that this was indeed ordered on October 7th. So they deliberately murdered hundreds of Israeli civilians, as well as their Hamas captors. If they hadn't done that, there would have been perhaps seven or 800 hostages rather than 250. So th- Can you send me a link, has- Kevin? Can you send me a link to that so I can verify that? Yeah, there, there's all kinds of material about this, but the first place to go is Max Blumenthal's work uh, in the gray zone. So if I read Blumenthal's latest article about how the, uh, the legend of the Hamas brutality and all of this was uh, created to hide the fact that it was actually Israel that killed the vast majority of its own civilians on October 7th. Yeah, Blumenthal is the wrong Jew, isn't he? There's a lot of wrong Jews lately. If you look, well, you know, that's the thing. It's, it's funny, isn't it? People like Max Blumenthal and so many other people with Jewish heritage are doing great work on this, although Max, I think, is really setting himself apart. Uh, but many others are doing great work as well. And it will be tragic if people just end up uh, hating on all Jews. But you can see why they would, given what the so-called Jewish state is doing. It's short-sighted and small-minded, um, people who do think like that. And ultimately, it does no good because humanity has to pull together, Kevin, because I'm going to give you the last word, as I always do. In my opinion, what's happening in Gaza, heinous as it is, and it is causing me sleepless nights. It is. I can't bear it. There's nothing I can do about it, only talk about it. Um, but it's it's one facet of a much wider agenda, basically, to enslave humanity and take us into a technocratic, dystopian future where every movement of ours, every thought we have is controlled. And if we don't unite and somehow stand up against it, we're finished. I'm going to give you the last word before I do. KevinBarrett.substack.com, TruthJihad.com. You're listening to academic broadcaster, author and researcher, Kevin Barrett. Final word, pal, to you and thanks again for coming on. Well, thanks, Richie. And you know, I have to admit that you may have been right about the possibility of some kind of stand down on October 7th. That's that I'm admitting, you know, I didn't think it was true last time we talked. Now, maybe it turns out you were right. And then secondly, you're absolutely right about this being part of the push for a global technocratic dictatorship. And uh, for I actually just wrote about that and my most recent article of the Substack, kevinbarrett.substack.com, gets into some of the details about how I see that particular plan. Kevin, um, best to you and Rabia, and um, Merry Christmas. I don't say that now with tongue-in-cheek. I'm not a Christian myself, but um, happy holidays then, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on throughout 2023, and I look forward to chatting with you and uh, sparring with you in 2024. Cheers, my friend. Okay, thanks, Richie. Take bye, care. Bye for now. Kevin Barrett live on Monday's Richie Allen Show. As I said, kevinbarrett.substack.com and truthjihad.com. Thanks to Kevin. Lots of your messages coming in, but I'm going to take a tune now before I read them out. Okay, Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse, tears dry on their own on the Richie Allen Show. Rule things out at your peril, at your peril, says William. John says, I agree with Kevin. We've been lied to on a massive scale. Watch the documentary One Third of the Holocaust on BitChute. Now, I'm going to take John to task there. Not because of John's opinion, but documentaries are incredibly subjective things. They are. I don't mean subjective in terms of the viewer. And there I'm being a bit disingenuous because when you watch a documentary, most of us can be fairly easily swayed to coming around to think like or to see things as the 
as the the maker of the documentary, Michael Moore would be a great example of that. Okay, where I was very easily swayed by Michael Moore's films because of the way they were edited and the things that were communicated by Moore in the films. When people make a documentary, very few people, if ever, make a documentary that is entirely objective, where they are genuinely intrigued about a set of circumstances, intrigued enough to grab producers and and camera operators and equipment and go and make a film. They're very subjective. And I don't know anything about one third of the Holocaust, but I bet you that the premise, the, the, the starting point for the, for the filmmakers was there was some aspect of the Holocaust that they had a problem with. Now you might say, well, isn't, and, you, and look, you'd be right to say, you know, it's complicated this. You'd be right to say, well, Rich, isn't that, isn't that how journalism works? You're suspicious about something. It is up to a point, but you've got to leave your own personal opinion and your own feelings at the door, in my opinion. That's what I would say. Look, I visited these places. You've never heard an independent radio presenter ever go after Israel and Jewish identity like I've done on this programme over a nine-year period here and before that on other programmes. I, I, I go as far as you can go, as, as, as far as anybody has ever gone, in going after Israel. And as I said, Jewish identity and the diaspora. All of this stuff, long before COVID, we were talking about it. You, you'll know if you've been with this programme long enough, the unbelievable scenes uh, for a month in May of 2019 on social media, when my address, my photographs, the photograph of my missus, our phone numbers were put online by Zionists in the northwest of the UK because of my comments of, about Israel and about, um, you know, Israeli government influence in the United Kingdom and in the United States. So I've never self-censored. I say what it is I feel, like saying what I believe. But, um, and I wonder how many people, I mean, I get messages, I ignore them. I get them on the app, I get them on the website, people saying the Holocaust never happened and all of that. And I say to them, um, you know, and I doesn't bother me, but I say to them, why don't you post that stuff using your real name and a real photograph? And they don't. And that's when I know that they're not really sincere. Because if they were sincere, they wouldn't give a shit, really. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they might be sincere, but maybe they fear the consequences. But then they're cowards, really. Because I've never um, taken a position of... I've never decided to, to, to keep stum. I have never silenced myself because I fear consequences. Never. Never. Whatever I believe to be the case, I will state it. I will never hold back because I worry that it might have some repercussions for me down the line. But So, so the Holocaust deniers are cowards, whichever way you look at it. Because they hide behind stupid names, usernames, pseudonyms. They, they go out of their way to make themselves next to impossible to identify. And that's fair enough. I don't want to identify them. I don't give a damn. I'm a free speech absolutist. You say what it is you really feel. But I know you're a coward when you're hiding behind pseudonyms and silly cartoon avatars. You're a worthless coward, really. You know? I mean, say what you want, but, but, but stand over it. Put your, put your name behind it, is what I would say. But um, I visited Dachau. I went to Auschwitz. I spent a lot of time 
speaking to people, to Germans, people who'd worked in concentration camps. I've interviewed over the years. I've interviewed people who worked in concentration camps. I stood in front of such people. Um, idiots on the dark web would say they were crisis actors. Idiots who hide behind pseudonyms and stupid avatars. No, these were real people. I met people in Dachau who said it went on. We know it went on. Spoke to people who carried the bodies. I spoke to people who'd been in the room when unbelievably grotesque experiments were done on Jewish people in Dachau. And yet people who just hate Jews, and you do meet them in the independent media, they hate Jews. That's their starting point. They hate Jews and they have this idea that Jews are somehow responsible for all the ills in the world. Jews. Idiots, these people. They're idiots and they're so wrong. They're so short-sighted. You know, that there's a master race operating on planet Earth, manipulating everything. No. You only have to look at the last three years to see that Jewish people in Israel, or Israelis, were not exempt from the fucking tyranny we were exempt from. Not exempt at all. And if the Israeli government, or the deep state in Israel, Mossad, whatever you want to say, if it allowed Jewish men and women to be slaughtered on October 7th, if that happened, I don't know it did happen, but I suspect it, when you look at the insider trading, when you look at the, the female lookouts who said that they were threatened with court-martial for saying something very serious is going to happen, well, if you look at those huge pieces of evidence, you've got to at least open up the possibility that they allowed it happen. So now tell me that the Israeli Jews are somehow part of some master manipulative group manipulating world events. They're not. They're the victims of the same shit you and I are the victims of. There is a global agenda to enslave every man, woman and child on planet Earth. A global. And nobody's exempt from it. No matter what your identity. None. It's preposterous to me, this, this anti-Jewish hatred. It's preposterous. I've never understood it. And for years, people have tried to associate themselves with my programme. People who denied the Holocaust. To try and bring me down, you know. To try and bring the show down. I've even interviewed Holocaust deniers and, and challenged them. I get so frustrated with it every time you talk about Israel, Gaza. Israel is the devil. Right now. But is it any fucking worse than the United States or the United Kingdom? I would argue, no, it isn't. How can you signal, or, 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 or not signal, how can you single Israel out for crimes? At the moment, Israel is the blue ribbon winner. It is exterminating the people of Palestine. Its army, the IDF, is wiping them out. Man by man, woman by woman, and child by child. And as Kevin said, it's been broadcast on national television. Right now. In recent years, the United States and the United Kingdom have killed fucking millions of people. Millions! Millions in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, to name three countries. Not to mention arming, training and funding the fucking head choppers that went into Syria. Tell me Israel is worse than that. It's small-minded. Oh, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Small-minded. And it's bullshit. I've not ranted like this for years about this subject. But I'm tired of it now. I'm tired of these fools sneaking around forums. You know... The Holocaust never happened and the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. You're a small-minded fucking moron and you're probably a bigot. The Jews have got nothing to do with what's unfolding in front of our eyes in our world. Did the Jews tell everybody in the UK to stay home and close their businesses? Was it the Jews, was it? No, it wasn't the fucking Jews. The time is four minutes to the top of the hour. I want to close out with this and then I'm gone until tomorrow morning when we'll do the papers.
Um, condolences to David Icke, to Linda, to Jamie and to Gareth and their extended family and Kerry's children for the life of me. One of, her, her boy's name is Zach, but I can never remember the name of her little girl who's not so little now. They'll be suffering tonight because um, they've lost um, their daughter, their mother, their sister. So I'm going to play out with this for, for Kerry Ike, who I knew briefly, but um, had a lot of time for. And it was announced she passed away earlier today. So send out some love and some strength to um, the Ike family, because they'll need it, I suppose, in the coming days and weeks. Until tomorrow, it's bye for me, bye now. So